Welcome to Beyond the Launch, where we engage with experienced entrepreneurs and business leaders to get a look into their lives and entrepreneurial journeys. I'm Michael Goldberg, Executive Director of the Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship at Case Western Reserve University. Thanks for making the time. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today we have Haley Kogelschatz from Shark and Minnow. Uh, she's going to discuss her career journey, entrepreneurship, uh, how COVID-19 crisis impacts her business and consulting. Um, and today we have this facilitated by Queenie Tang, who is a BS in marketing and international business. Mm-hmm. And uh, Haley, or sorry, Queenie, I'm going to hand it over to you to uh, introduce Haley and take it from here. Yeah, of course. Hello, everybody. My name is Queenie Tang. I'm a third year student, double majoring in marketing and international business. Um, So I have been involved with the Veal Institute since the fall of this year, um, when I had the opportunity to attend the entrepreneurship truck in San Francisco with Michael. Um, So I just want to say a quick welcome. um, And thank you so much for joining us today. And I'll start jumping in with the first question. Um, so Haley, from your very impressive resume, you are the CEO and president of Shark Minnow, which you founded in 2013 with your husband, Eric. Um, so what do you think has been the biggest challenge that you have faced as an entrepreneur so far? Uh, well, first and foremost, I'll say thank you for having me here. It's exciting to talk entrepreneurship. It's something I'm deeply passionate about. I will say that my entire career, having worked for other people up until founding my own company, it was always something that I saw as a measure of success. My entire family is built up of entrepreneurs. Um, and so I think in the back of my mind, until I had a firm of my own, it wasn't going to feel um, quite like the success that I had been looking for. And it took me a long time to realize that, even though I kind of knew it, I think, at my core. It, it, it took me working for a lot of other people to really realize that forging my own path was the right path for me. Um, as far as challenges go, I think that there are, there's a lot of trial and error when you start your own firm, even though you think that there's a tried and true way to, to do things. Um, you know, you can't be afraid to test ideas. And I'll give you one example of that. You know, when we first started our firm, we thought that our hiring model should be to hire hire true specialists. This is really like an old like ad agency model. You know, you have your account manager and you have your, you know, editor and you have your, you know, strategist and never, you know, the three shall meet, so to speak. Um, And we tried that and, you know, our industry is one that's heavily being impacted by technology. Um, And for various other reasons, we just felt like that wasn't really working in the way we wanted it to work. And so we, you know, through trial and error decided that we wanted to completely uproot our hiring model, our structure and create cross-disciplinary teams. And so just because you may be hired in and your primary role at Shark and Minnow might be a designer, it doesn't mean that you're never going to be conceptually thinking in motion-based design and working hand-in-hand with an editor to construct projects that you know, really like create that cross-disciplinary sharing of ideas and conceptualizing of ideas. And so, you know, I would say that that was one of the challenges that we, you know, kind of ran into in the first year in startup mode, right? You're trying to figure out how you want to be structured. Um, I think another thing that we've learned over the years is what kind of firm we want to be. And because of the firm that we want to be, the types of clients that aren't really the right types of clients for ours. And so it doesn't happen very often, but we have had a few challenging relationships where what it came down to was, 
as much as I would love the revenue and to keep billing, you know, certain projects to clients, there are certain clients that, you know, we just know are the right, are not the right kinds of clients for the firm. And it's not good for them and it's not good for us to continue on those paths. And so we've had to have some very challenging conversations with clients that aren't looking for strategic thinking, that are truly looking for like tactical, like one and done kind of work. It's not that we never take on that work, but we want to work within a, a strategic framework with clients. And so if we're going to be working tactically, we still wanna know that we're creating work that's going to work for those clients. And so it really is a shared um, sort of mindset that we work within. And for us, you know, knowing when that's not present and walking away more quickly than too late is really important because there's nothing that's more important for entrepreneurs um, then maintaining your relationships um, so that your reputation stays intact for the long term. You don't want it to get out there that you're um, not a good fit, that you're not workable, um, because obviously in the long term, the hope is that you're going to have happy clients, which we're very fortunate that we do. And they oftentimes refer you to other clients because they're very pleased with your work. And so you have to let your relationship stay intact. And if that means walking away from you know, certain pieces of business, um, then that's something you know, that, that you, you need to be prepared to do. So those are two challenges that I, you know, that I thought of right off the bat. Um, but also, you know, I will say that, you know, we work very hard to hire the right people. We had a position open last year um, that, you know, we had many qualified candidates, you know, they had the skill set that made them a right fit on paper. But when we went into interviews, and we take a lot of time interviewing candidates, what we realized was they didn't quite embody the set of values or the ethos that we were looking for at Shark and Minnow. And so um, we had one position in particular where we screened over 200 candidates for this position. And, you know, we weren't finding the right fit for us and we didn't feel it was the right fit for our client. And so in the interim, because, you know, I've worked in other markets as have other members of our team, um, you know, this, this became a very positive thing for clients because what we learned was we could pull on our international book of talent and hire both contract employees, part-time employees and full-time employees to serve as clients and bring in the right set of skills for each project. So it allowed us to be a lot more flexible and it allowed us to also think, you know, in different ways about how the work gets created and the value of having both full-time and extemporaneous talent working side by side. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so we actually have our first question from startups. So if you want to unmute your mic, um, feel free to ask your question. All right. So um, his or her question was in terms of strategic consulting with larger clients, have you noticed Peter Principle in real life? People rising to their level of incompetence. Do you think that senior level folks truly deserve their compensation? Mm. Yeah. So um, I will say that in the world of, you know, when you look at traditional agency models in the, in the world of communications, there are a lot of people where truly it's not their fault, but they just are not prepared to go into that next role. Management is not something that comes easy to a lot of people, nor is senior level creative or strategic thinking. And so it really takes strong mentorship. And it also takes a sense of um, inward motivation to rise to that next 
level and you know this desire to be that continual learner so we talk about it a lot at shark and minnow but one of the things that makes us different is we, we always talk about being innately curious and i think that that's one of the the principles that we look for in candidates is are you curious what are you doing to forward your own learning um, how are you going to contribute to this environment aside from what's in your job description um, and i think that makes our team very different um, it also makes it a place where you know to be honest it's very hard to get hired at Shark and Minnow because we look for those A players. And, um, and once we know that you're coming in with that fire in your belly, we know that we can train you on tools and skills. You need to have that passion coming in. And I think if you start with that, it helps to um, alleviate you know, some of that stress as you move through your career. It helps to make it more possible that you won't see those heightened levels of incompetence because people really do want to improve. They're going to be asking those questions to help um, their own personal development without you as a manager always having to sit down with them at a performance review and say, hey, these are the things I really need for you to work on. And in fact, I will say that, you know, we do um, monthly meetings with each of our employees um, so that it's never a surprise. If I feel something isn't working or if they feel something isn't working, we can always address those things in the moment. And so it's not like, you know, at some firms where you're a year out from being hired and it's like, surprise, this hasn't been working all year, but we haven't had a conversation about it. And because of the types of people that we hire and because of the way that we coach them on an ongoing basis, most of the time, if there's something that isn't working, it's something that management and the employee themselves has already identified. I don't feel like I go into too many conversations with my staff. And I'll say it's true for my management style. It's been at Charcomino, but it's also something that I've used in other firms. Um, I don't feel like I go into too many conversations with my with my staff where I'm surprising them with an issue. Um, and it's always presented in a way that is in the spirit of improvement. I never want to trick my employees. I never want them to feel like I'm trying to trip them up. My feedback is always aimed at allowing them to identify where they have room to grow and allowing them to be as successful as possible. It's not a benefit to anybody to set up managers or senior level talent to fail. So. I think, um, you know, I hope that answers the question. Um, let me know if it didn't. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, to answer the, the final piece of that question, do senior level folks truly deserve, deserve their compens compensation? I think it depends on, on what they're bringing to the table. Um, and I also think there are a lot of senior level folks that are grossly underpaid um, because of economic conditions that have happened. I know a lot of people, unfortunately, that I worked with back, you know, when the recession hit in 2008, 2009, that never recovered financially from that. They are still underpaid um, and working at levels that are far below, particularly on the coasts, um, that are far below, you know, compensation that they had been paid previously. So it really depends. But I think, you know, the compensation should suit what you're bringing to your, your team. Um, and you know, you know, if you're really kind of bringing your a game every day um, or you're not you can feel it um, and so that's why we always start with passion um, and being hungry and and that helps you know at every stage of one's career I think we do have a question that just came in from Facebook from Pierre from Pierre Luigi um, how did you find your journey um, to finding your startup well I you know I, I had sort of like a varied path. Um, I did not intend to go into strategy. I actually was a film major with a double minor in marketing and fiction writing. So very different. 
Um, and when I graduated, you know, I grew up here in Cleveland, uh, but when I graduated, I was living in Boston and I realized I was going to move to LA and had done some work freelancing in New York. And I realized that I never wanted to move to LA and that's kind of a problem if you have a film degree. <laughs> so you gotta figure out something else to do. And a mentor of mine, um, I went to Emerson College in Boston. I see a few other Emerson alum on this call. Um, and uh, a mentor of mine in college said to me, he was the chair of the marketing department at the time. He said, hey, I know that you didn't think that you wanted to go into communications, but you're good at it. And there's a shop where I think you'll feel culturally that it's a right fit. And so I needed a job and I interviewed there and it felt it felt like home. It felt like a family. Um, culturally, it is the closest thing to my own firm that I have ever worked for. It was an independent shop called Modernista. It no longer exists, um, which I can get into later if anyone's interested. But um, it was an incredible place full of like really divergent thinkers. Everyone was constantly coming to the table with new ideas, like good was not good enough. It was a high pressure situation for sure. Um, but it, it taught me that I wanted to do a job where no two days were the same and I could always use my brain. I could always be thinking and learning and you know, bringing something new to the table um, and helping clients. And I had the ability to work on some really exciting campaigns, um, pieces of national, national and global business. And to me, you know, you kind of get that fire in your belly. You realize that you like to be the one to help creative problem solve. And, you know, that, that media background, and I, when I was studying film, I, I had intended to be a producer. That was what I was going to go do out in, in Los Angeles. And um, I realized that that skill set is the same kind of skill set that you have to have in any job to be successful. You have to know how to solve problems. You have to know how to manage budgets. You have to know how to manage timelines and schedules. You have to know how to run a team. You have to work with creative talent, financial talent, strategic talent. You have to find a way to make it all work. And I think that those skills are really helpful in um, entrepreneurship because you have to wear so many hats. Um, but again, much in the same way, I want to hire passionate talent. I knew that I had a passion for um, creating work that worked early on. So I think that really helped me to find my path. Um, and frankly, that's why, you know, being the CEO of a consultancy is really exciting for me because um, it's not just about marketing. There are a lot of projects that we work on, a lot of you know, kind of big strategic projects where marketing may be an outcome, but it may not be an outcome. You know, it could be about you know digitalization of a business. It could be about you know thinking through like staffing and org charts, or it could be research based. There are so many ways that strategy comes into play that it allows us to apply it um, for clients across all different kinds of industries in different ways. So I think the most important thing in finding your own path is really finding the thing that makes you tick. Um, and I think a good litmus test on that is like if you have a job, and I've had these two where you have to psych yourself up to, to get up out of bed in the morning and you don't want to go. And, you know, that's a good, you know, you learn as much of, you know, about yourself from those kinds of experiences as well, where it's like, I don't ever want to do that again. I know I never want to work in a job where I feel that way again. So that, you know, helps you to kind of like hone in on, you know, where do I want to go in my career and then start to forge a roadmap for how to get there. Um, so we have another question from Sarah. So she said, as someone with my own consultancy, because I have a diverse experience and skill set, I have three lines of services. 
One of the questions I continually get is where my real niche is. How have you balanced having a specific niche versus providing an array of complementary services? Well, I think at your core, you know that, you know, you may have a lot of different skill sets, which, you know, obviously we do at Shark and Minnow as well, but you know that there are certain things that you do better than anybody else. And I think it takes a lot of, you know, kind of soul searching and just being very honest with yourself about the things that you're good at and the things that you're not good at and being very honest with your clients about, you know, these are, these are some things that we can certainly help you with, but we're going to bring in a specialist to handle this piece of the project or whatever the case may be. Um, so I think the positioning of your consultancy is really important. Um, I think that when you look at the projects that you've been most successful on in the past, it'll give you some clues into where you should really be positioning yourself in the future. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't offer other services. I mean, my firm, for example, um, grew very organically. You know, we intended to, when my husband and I started the firm, we intended to be a husband and wife consultancy. We were just going to work with, you know, a small book of business. And the fortunate problem that we had was that our clients were very happy and they, you know, would work on us with strategic projects, work, you know, with us on strategic projects. But then they said, well, we don't want to stop working with you. Can you help us out with design? Do you have a designer? Do you have, you know, and then it grew into other disciplines, digital, you know, digital work and media buying and planning. And, um, you know, the truth is I don't do all of those things, but I've hired experts that do. And so we were able to in-house a lot of those things, not because we want to be an all under one roof agency, but because we want to, if we're going to do these things, we want to be the best at it for our clients. And we're going to hire the right people that can help us do that. Um, so our scope of work for any two clients, it doesn't look the same. You know, some of our clients say, oh, that's our, that's our video, video production company. And some of our clients say, oh, those are, our, those are our brand strategists. So it really means creating custom solutions for, for every client and making sure that they understand what you can do well um, and the things where you're willing to be honest and say there's a better fit for you here, but we'll figure out how to make that work for you. Anna, would you like to ask your question yourself? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question, Anna. <laughs> okay, I'll repeat it. Um, so if you were graduating this year, um, what path would you go in this strange time, entering the workforce or doing a startup or something else? So I also graduated in a recession and I won't let you, I won't tell you which one because that outs my age. But um, I will tell you that the most important thing that you can do is rack up that experience and, you know, find someone that you really respect and somebody that you really can learn from. And that's actually my advice when I mentor people that are at the junior level of their career, no matter what the market circumstances are, um, no matter the field, you know, if you're going into that job, whether it's a job or an internship, if it's paid, if it's unpaid, if you're not at your junior level of your career and there and, and with a boss that can really teach you and train you and let you ask questions and learn from them, if you're not being inspired, if you're not, you know, at, a, at an organization that's letting you answer some of your questions about what you might want to do later in your career, then you're not, you may be giving them something in that experience, but they're not giving enough back to make it worth your time. So I think right now the most important thing that you can do, and obviously everybody needs to get paid, you have to live, I understand that, um, but if you can find a way to make it work um, to get yourself into a situation where you can learn 
um, on the job, you will be more successful in the long term um, and you will be more valuable to the types of organizations that you may want to work for. So get that experience early, try a lot of things. Um, also use your downtime to really look into things that may build that toolkit of skills that that you can bring to the table um, so you know research where the industry that you're in is going and try and figure out what you need to know to be um, you know as competitive of a of a candidate um, you know once the markets open up and i will say you know there are there are many employers that are going to be hiring they're going to need talent in the next few months um, for better or worse, in economic downturns, a lot of what happens is, you know, the senior level talent, the intermediate level talent gets shed. Um, and there are more available openings for junior level talent or people that are willing to come in and work at a more, you know, economical salary. So it's not necessarily a bad time to be a junior level um, candidate coming into the market, but I think the most important thing to think about is not just how can I fill a seat, but how am I going to make this something that's valuable to me, you know, when I look back in five years um, and how have I used this time to really, you know, innovate in my own life um, and not just, you know, provide, provide a, you know, kind of hands on deck for an employer. So let me ask a question, pivoting just a little bit about um, the current COVID-19 pandemic. And as a small firm in the Cleveland area, especially a small firm that's largely B2B in nature, where your business and its self-sufficiency actually depends on how well other companies are doing, what are you finding challenging um, uh, during this time to help keep your company moving forward and growing and you know what does that response look like? Um, so you're asking about what are the challenges during COVID nineteen or what's okay? Yeah, I think so. What I'll say is not necessarily for our company, um, and I'll explain why in a moment. But for a lot of entrepreneurs and business leaders that I know, I mean, I have I'm very fortunate. I have a network of of you know, people that I would call friends and colleagues that also own their own businesses across the country. Um, and one thing that surprised me is how little long-term long-term planning a lot of them have done to prepare for um, economic moments like this. Um, I will say that, you know, it's not that it hasn't been a challenging period for us. Certainly financially is the biggest impact on any service-based firm. Um, you know, there are many of our clients that, um, you know, we, we work heavily in B2B, but we also work, you know, pretty equally in B2C and nonprofit. And we have a lot of clients that, frankly, have had to divert bills. Um, you know, we have a lot of clients that have just come to us like desperate, can't pay. Um, we do have some clients that have a very rare, but a few of them were desperate enough to ask if they could cancel contracts. Um, and the, and there aren't many of those, and I, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to say that because you know I, I have you know very you know close personal you know friends who run businesses where that's not the case. They've seen themselves like practically wiped out. I think what's made it um, a, a good lesson learned um, in this time for a lot of people, and it was one that I was fortunate enough to have learned back in 2008, um, is to prepare for the worst case scenario. So I have, um, I, I had an employee say to me last year, 
um, that they felt that at times my outlook could be really negative. And I had to explain to this employee that I'm actually a very optimistic person, but it's my job as CEO to consider what happens when the bottom falls out. What happens when the worst thing that you can imagine from a business standpoint happens? And how do you prepare your business so that if that should happen, you're not gonna see yourself in a position where you have to do one of two things. A, make major layoffs, or B, shutter your doors. Um, and I saw that happen with the first firm I worked for. I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I worked for a firm that I loved. I, you know, I worked on big, exciting brand campaigns. That, for, that firm made, um, they were incredibly bright people, but made some really glaring mistakes when it came to weathering economic downturns and being able to plan for the worst. Um, in fact, I think there was, you know, there, there wasn't as much planning as I would have hoped. Um, and luckily I had moved on to another job at that point. But it was heartbreaking to see them shutter their doors, you know, and I never wanted, you know, when I went into business for myself, I never wanted to see that happen. And my employees hear me say this all the time that we are not risk averse as a company, but we are very calculated in the kinds of risks we make and when um, we are we are very, very slow to hire and very, very slow to fire, I like to say, um, you know, because we want the right people there and I will do whatever I can to protect their jobs as a result. Um, you know, we're very lucky that we are fiscally conservative in that way that we can, you know, when things, you know, when things do take a downturn, um, it allows us to be a little bit more creative with how we can weather the storm. So um, again, you know, it's not that it hasn't been a challenging period for us, but you know, in terms of like the real tangible challenges of something like COVID-19 and the economic fallout, um, we were better prepared than most. I will say the hardest thing for me personally as a CEO has been, um, the mental and emotional piece. You know, I'm an endurance runner and I, I keep comparing this to a marathon, which I think is a, an easy analogy. Um, but that's the hardest thing about endurance running. You know, you sometimes in that race, you don't know when you're going to see that, that finish line. And I think that the same thing holds true for economic incidents like this, where you don't know when the market will begin to turn. And figuring out ways to truly use the time constructively has been a help. Um, to me and I think to our staff in feeling like there's purpose, there is reason every day, even if you that project you may have been working on gets delayed, there are ways that you can fill your day that are helpful to you personally in your own professional development and also to the firm. And so we've done a lot to really use this time constructively and I think that that's, that's one way that you can certainly kind of make lemons into lemonade, so to speak. Um, so we have a question from Igor, and he said, what is your problem-solving approach when clients present you with a particular business problem? Well, it really depends on what the business problem is. Um, but the first step in any client relationship with our firm is we want to know as much as possible about our clients. And so that's why, you know, we... Uh, and my husband's background is in consumer behavior and research. And, um, you know, the work that we do is heavily rooted in research for that reason. 
you know, a lot of our clients say that we know their business better than some of their employees. And it's true. Um, and the reason why is because we can't be strategic on their behalf if we haven't examined what they've done in the past, what's worked, what hasn't, what does the competitive set look like? You know, all of this kind of like marketing 101, um, kind of back to basics thinking um, is what makes the work work. You know, I've worked for a lot of firms that um, their approach is let's create something glitzy and glossy and it looks great, but does it work for the clients at the end of the day? I've seen a lot of campaigns that have flopped for that reason because they didn't take the time to do the upfront strategic research and planning that it takes to construct work that works. Um, and so, you know, it always starts with really getting to know everything inside and out. I think that a lot of um, the work that I'm most proud of, you know, results from what we call creative friction internally. So this idea of bringing together multidisciplinary teams to think about work in different ways, extrapolating, you know, successes that you might see in other industries and, and how might that play out in a different industry um, and, and not relying on like tried and true methods that you know may have worked in the past you know the world is always changing and particularly in this era where technology is shifting on the daily um, so i think the more that you can stay you know informed and the more that you can dive deep into client businesses um, if you're talking about consulting specifically um, that allows us to to really be um, successful on behalf of our clients Julia, did you want to go ahead and ask your question? Yeah, sure. So, hi, I am working the Women's Center on campus, and we have a program to support women students that want to pursue entrepreneurship in STEM specifically. Um, I was just wondering what advice you would have for women pursuing an entrepreneurial venture, and then also if you've ever experienced imposter syndrome and how, um, how you kind of dealt with that, if at all. Oh, yes. This is my favorite question. I, you know, I, I think about this a lot. Um, I do a lot of mentoring with other women in business, whether they're entrepreneurs or, or, you know, working for somebody else. Um, imposter syndrome, 110%. I think um, the majority of my career, um, one thing that's happened, but I do think it's something that's made me also successful, is I am the, I'm the first one to get in. I'm the last one to leave. I work harder. I have been on teams where I'm the only woman. I work harder than anybody else. And it's because I feel that I need to be able to do that to compete um, on all male teams. I've, I've felt that for sure. Um, I've also felt, um, you know, and it's surprising, you know, the moments where I felt it, but I, I've felt that even now there are a lot of um, handshake deals that go on on the golf course, you know, kind of in male dominated circles um, where I feel, you know, like I'm sometimes, you know, I'm having to force my seat at the table. It certainly happens for sure. Um, I will say that um, as far as advice for women that are thinking about starting their own venture. Um, I think that there are a couple of things that, that um, are, are very top of mind for me. A lot of times female entrepreneurship is positioned as a, you know, quote unquote side hustle or a hobby or something cute. You know, this idea of, you know, female on what female entrepreneurship looks like is like, you know, it's me, uh, you know, with a pink wall behind me drinking a mimosa, like it's fun. It's this thing I do in my spare time. And that's not reality. I think that, you know, for women, 
um, in particular, one of the hardest things is, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm also deeply involved in my community, I serve on boards, I serve on committees. Entrepreneurship is something I do to feed my family. It's not something I do because it's fun. It's, it's not easy. I chose the hard path. Entrepreneurship is an all in, you know, toss it in, no safety net, you know, and particularly in my case where I do it with my spouse, you know, it's not like, you know, if the bottom fell out, it's not like I have somebody else's salary to rely on. Um, so I would say that, you know, you need to treat it seriously. It's serious. Don't let the models of female entrepreneurship out there, you know, kind of the highlight reel, make you feel bad about what you're going through when you're getting started. I think that there are a lot of women out there that feel like, well, this isn't fun. And, you know, and I, I'm struggling so hard just to get my business off the ground. You know, I talk to a lot of women entrepreneurs and they're like, they make, you know, you look at the, you look at the media and they make it look so fun. And I constantly think about this idea that like you're comparing what real life really feels like to somebody's highlight reel. That's not, that's not real. Um, so I think to be very honest with yourself about measures of success is critical. Um, and I also think to, to, to really set those measures of success real, realistically. I think the other thing that's really critical is to find, you know, I know, you know, it sounds you know, very standard and basic, but find either a mentor or a model or somebody that you can really bounce ideas off of, vent to, um, that can give you guide. you know, they might not be in your same industry, but they can give you guidance about like how to weather the storm a little bit, because those early days of starting a business are so challenging. Everything's new, you know, even in my case where, you know, I, I had worked at a senior level for, for, you know, publicly held companies, you know, I worked for, um, you know, my ad agency that I worked for in Boston before I came back to Cleveland with 750 people in my office alone, they had offices all over the world. I worked client side for Saks Fifth Avenue for several years you know, on the, you know, on the corporate level. Um, it's not that I hadn't run things at the senior level before, but it was totally different when it was mine. It was totally different because, you know, I always joke about the fact that my business card says CEO, but I'm also the janitor. And I'm also, you know, I wear a lot of hats, you know, and I had to figure it out. You know, we had to figure out like, you know, how do you run PL? How do you forecast that when it's yours? You know, how do you, you know, find you, you know, your people that you can rely on um, in business? How do you develop that trust, um, you know, for your vendor partners? Um, and, you know, I also think the other thing that's challenging is it's so much more emotional when it's yours, you know, and that's a thing that, you know, doesn't get talked about a lot in any entrepreneurial circle, but especially with women, because women feel like they have to be strong. They have to be, you know, as, as tough as anybody because they have to be taken seriously. Um, and, you know, it's, it's okay to admit that like, this is a thing that you care about and that you, you're going to work as hard, if not harder than anybody else to be successful at it, because there's a lot on the line. So I think that, um, you know, again, I, I would just, you know, own that and recognize the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging, but there are definitely resources out there. I will say that the Women's Business Center here in Cleveland um, was extraordinary for us when we were getting started. Um, they really helped us navigate some incredibly challenging circumstances, particularly when it comes to physical space. Um, and I will say that the other thing that I really had no um, exposure to before getting into um, business for myself was 
the fact that there is a lot of financial support out there for women-based businesses. And the Women's Business Center, as well as the small business um, uh, department at the city of Cleveland was really helpful in helping us recognize how we could access that capital. And so there were a lot of people out there um, that, you know, were cheering for us, that wanted us to succeed. And, um, you know, and at least of those were our clients who, you know, certainly referred us. And that's the most important thing. So when all those things work together, um, you know, this can be an incredibly fulfilling life, but it's hard work, you know, and anybody thinks that there's a point at which you can step off the gas. That's, that's the, that's the trap, you know, that's the part where, you know, I've seen a lot of people fail is they feel like, oh, we got there, we're successful, you know, this is, and this is part of what I saw have happen with the first agency I mentioned that I worked for that no longer exists, you know, that, that firm by all measures was so successful, but they took their eye off the ball when it came to new business. And they put a lot of their eggs in the same um, industry basket. And, and that was automotive. And when the recession hit and the bottom fell out, there was nowhere left to go. So, you know, I do think um, you have to really have a plan, stick to it, refine and optimize that plan and, um, and learn who you can depend on. So you mentioned a lot about um, kind of serving on a board and the importance of um, kind of mentors and having a mentor while you're starting out. Um, so you've done a lot of civic projects, such as helping Kent State University with their urban design, um, with strategic planning and other initiatives. And you also served on several boards. Um, so how do you see the future generation making an impact on the Cleveland community? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think a lot about people coming into the business, um, business worlds, and, you know, how that might, how that might change with, with the junior people coming in. Um, I will say that to me, I am not a person that um, necessarily thinks about things within a next-gen lens. Um, you know, there are a lot of organizations that have like a young, younger cohort or a next-generation kind of situation. Um, but I found that for me, what's more successful is to think about how can people come together around common mindsets despite generation, uh, kind of generational differentiators and drive change. You know, some of the most, I, I would say like, crucial innovation that I've seen, particularly in Northeast Ohio, hasn't, you know, I think there's this idea of like fresh blood, like bringing in fresh blood and that idea being like, it should be younger people coming in. Um, I think younger people are a part of a, are an important part of the equation. I also think it's really important not to discount people, you know, because they might be of a certain age. You know, I have mentors and um, people that I truly think of as friends that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And, um, you know, I have been able to collaborate with them in really innovative ways in the same way that I collaborate with um, some of my, you know, young staff that might be really savvy when it comes to technology, but may not have the life or the work experience that allows them to apply that technology quite yet. So I think those are where the most interesting um, projects come from. It's like really thinking about developing teams 
teams with with a lot of different perspectives, but that shared passion and that shared drive to see success and making sure that everyone has that like open mind and open heart to really welcome new ideas. It's really, it's really hard. I think that's the hard thing about, um, you know, particularly when you think about young generation challenges, you know, there's a lot of conversation around managing millennials. Um, technically I fall at the older end of that bracket. I'm like a, what do they call us an exennial now or whatever, but, um, um, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how do you manage young people? How do you, you know, this kind of thing. And, and um, I, I think it's less about that. Um, and I think it's more about, you know, how do you model behaviors that you want all employees to share? And how do you set expectations around what great work looks like? Um, and then finding a roadmap where you can get to that together and, and making sure everybody's open, open to ideas from every member of a team. And that team could be a work team, that could be a board, um, that could be a committee, but making sure that somebody doesn't get shut down just because they're young or they're old or they didn't they didn't work in this industry. You know, I'm I'm reading right now. I'm reading um, Mort Mandel's book called It's All About Who and it's all about leadership. And it's a fantastic book um, for any entrepreneur, or anybody in leadership. I've had it. I've meant to read it for about two years now and I'm finally getting to it. That's part of what I'm doing with my extra time. Um, so Doug, to answer your question, I'll, hopefully I'll be reading more this summer. Um, but I, I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, there's a lot of really good information in there about, you know, how, how teams can come together, but, you know, having that shared set of values and letting things drive from that. And, and I think that's a really critical thing that I'm taking away from that book. Um, and really, you know, working hard to get the talent mix right, you know, getting those A players on board early so that when push comes to shove, when, when you know, things get tough like, like they are now, um, you know you have the right people sitting around the table and you can solve these problems together. So when we talk about um, the helping to build the community around us, I know that um, your firm does an event every year that sort of helps reach out to the community, I, and, and if I get the name wrong, correct me, but Shark Attack. Um, yes. So talk to us a little bit about how you feel, um, especially businesses in a local community, um, have a responsibility to give back or how that giving back helps build your firm. So, you know, a big, and this is, this is another thing that's talked about a lot in the book I'm reading right now, but a big piece of what I think makes certain businesses successful and others not is is values and integrity and starting there and you know that was something that was critical to me when we founded the firm was being very transparent about the types of things that we care about um, and letting people know that yes you know we want to be able to bring in enough money that i can pay my staff and everybody can have you know a living wage and you know we all feel good but we also want to be the kind of company that people are excited to get up in the morning and come to work for and so you know we do a number of different community-based things but what it really starts from is we looked we we considered a lot of different spaces around cleveland when we decided to put down roots here and we looked long and hard for the right environment um, and the first thing we did was we found a space in a you know we wanted to be in a neighborhood. We wanted to be in a place that was walkable. Um, we wanted to be in a place that um, is diverse and that looks for opportunities for true inclusion. And, um, 
we and you know so public transportation in terms of socioeconomic um, diversity and um, accessibility was really important to us and so all of those things made shaker square the logical choice for us and being a part of the buckeye neighborhood of cleveland um you know and and so that was the first piece of it was really being a part in physical in a physical sense of the neighborhood um, once we rooted ourselves there, um, we looked for ways that we could give back. So in addition to Shark Attack, which I will talk about in a minute, um, we also have um, what we call our Read Aloud program, where we partner with a Cleveland, a school in the Cleveland Municipal School District, Harvey Rice Elementary School, and we come in and we read to their class um, monthly. It's really important to us to promote literacy because we see that as a path to not just educational success, but also professional success later in life. And so we go in and read and we also gift books to the school um, to build their library as well. And on a, on a more kind of broad business level, we look for opportunities to give back. So we have a whole um, nonprofit um, portion of our practice. We offer heavily discounted rates to nonprofits. Um, and, you know, that's because, you know, we do care about the community. I mean, this is a part of my value system. I believe it's a part of everybody at our firm's value system that we find ways to give back. Um, and, you know, the kind of like jewel in the crown of that is our shark attack. And so every year on Giving Tuesday, um, we donate a day's worth of consulting services to an area nonprofit. And we allow area nonprofits to apply with a specific business challenge they're facing. Um, and then we come in and we do, we kind of go through the same kind of onboarding practice um, that we are um, a process that we go through with um, any of our clients where we sit down, we really understand the organization to the best of our ability within a couple of hours. Um, and then we do sort of a rapid R&D process on the project that they're that they're being challenged with at the moment. And we come back to them with suggestions. So, um, you know, this year our Shark Attack awardee was the Julia de Burgos Cultural Arts Center um, in the city of Cleveland, and we've helped them think about how they can really extend their reach and um, and their impact um, with Latinx youth in our city. And so that was an extremely rewarding, um, you know, project that we've worked on, and um, we've worked with a lot of other organizations in the past um, that. Um, has you know really led them to think about their their work in a different way. So that's a that's something we're really proud of. Awesome. So Carlton asked, um, what advice you have for women trying to learn how to network at the very beginning of their careers? Mm. So I, I think the most important thing is networking is hard. You know, I'm a person who's out there a lot. Um, you know, in the public realm, but. Um, I, I, it was funny. I was, I was speaking with my, my son's pediatrician recently, and he's like talking about different types of personality types. And he's like, Oh, I think you're an introverted extrovert. And I'm like, what does that mean? And it's actually, it's very much so how I operate. I'm out there a lot. I have no problems going out and talking to people, but I'm like kind of an inherently shy person. And so, um, you know, I feel kind of socially anxious in certain situations where I've got to go into a big room and um, and network with a bunch of people I don't know. It's not a comfortable place for me to be. But what I had to do early in my career was really go out there and, um, and force myself to do it. 
and, um, and find ways where I could be more comfortable in those situations. I found that I was much more comfortable, um, and I am in every situation if I have time to prepare. And so if I know that I'm going into a room full of people that have a common interest, you know, really doing my homework on, you know, what is that common interest if I don't know much about it? You know, what, what's happening in that industry at the moment? And giving myself some talking points so that I at least have a place to start conversations because it's so much easier to network once you get into the conversation and you know that you are having a dialogue with somebody else and you're able to keep up. So I think, you know, allowing yourself to prepare and not feel like, oh, I have to go into this room and like be this like magical entertainer, this like master conversationalist. Like, I think that that's one of the most important things that you can think about. The other thing is, a lot of people are nervous when it comes to networking. It's not an easy thing to do to insert yourself into a conversation and like make new friends, so to speak. So um, practice, I think that that's important. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, going out and that's, that's you know, when, when I'm talking about in-person networking. The other thing that I think is really critical is, again, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, and it applies to jobs, but it also applies to the process that it takes to actually secure a job um, or secure a position on a board or anything like that is looking for those people that have done it successfully. And sometimes it's as easy as raising your hand and saying, I really love what you've done and I want to learn how to do it. Um, you know, would you be willing to, you know, have a conversation with me for 30 minutes? And you would be surprised, particularly in Cleveland, how accessible people are and how willing people are to grow talent from the ground up. I was incredibly grateful when I moved back here. You know, I, even though I had grown up in Cleveland, I hadn't lived here for over 10 years and Cleveland had changed so much. Um, and my network, my professional network was very limited here. And I was surprised at how many people People I reached out to that were like, oh, yeah, I'll have coffee with you or we can talk on the phone or whatever. And I mean, these are people like, um, you know, like Dave Gilbert and um, Terry, you know, over at Grid Cleveland Partnership and Terry Schwartz over at Kent State Urban Design Collaborative. And I mean, people that, you know, they had plenty on their plates. It wasn't like they had to take a half an hour out of their day and sit down with me and um, and impart, you know, any sort of advice, but they did it because they, they are the type of people that really care about growing that next gen. Um, so I received a private message asking how you set expectations with your employees and how you measure those expectations. Absolutely. So, um, I, you know, I, I had an employee say to me when I first started the firm that I have incredibly high expectations and that's very true. Um, I, I think that, you know, in order for us to be the best that we can be for our clients, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Um, we have to be the kind of firm where good isn't good enough, where we always get to great. And it takes a while to figure out what getting to great looks like. And so we do a lot of things to educate um, before it even comes down to the employee by employee level. One of the things that we do is we have a re reoccurring internal event called cool hunting um, at the firm where we encourage every employee to show up with something that inspired them over the last month. Um, that could be business related. That could be an exhibit they went to. That could be something they saw while walking down the street. That could be a customer service experience. That could be just something that interests them. That could be a new music video that came out or a piece of technology. It could literally be anything. But we're trying to identify what great looks like in lots of different forms. And so sharing that 
that with each other allows us to have conversation about great work. Um, and so that's one way that we model behavior is, you know, sharing our thoughts, our research, and letting everybody cross-share their research um, so that we can learn together. Um, the other thing that we do to set expectations is we talk about industry industry standards. Um, and we really, you know, try and, and practice continual education in, in the things that we talk about around the firm, as well as making sure that every member of our team has the ability for um, continued learning. So, you know, that could be certainly a course, like something offered a case. It could also be you know, a webinar. It could also be a conference. And so we look for the right types of continuing ed for our, for our employees to be sure that, you know, if there is something that, you know, for example, if there are certain skills that I'm like, okay, I've taken it as far as I can with our internal resources and now I have to get you some external training, we need to make that investment to make sure that they're set up for success. Beyond that, you know, it's very clear to employees. I make sure that, that in my management style, I am very, very clear in my language that I use, that our employees understand, like, this is what I want you to do. This is the expectation. This is what success looks like. And if we're falling short, having really honest conversations with employees about, you know, I, I said this on that call. I, I was expecting that it would be done by today. Can you talk to me about why that might not have happened? And let's figure out how we can avoid this in the future. So looking for opportunities to really train in the moment is critical. And then beyond that, as I mentioned before, we do have what we call monthly conclaves. So those are one-on-one -on -one meetings with your supervisor to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, right? Like talking about your performance plan, what's working well. It also gives me a time not just to set expectations and talk about where they're falling short, but also say like, hey, you blew me out of the water with this. Like I thought that you wouldn't be able to like get to this measure of success until next year, but you're doing it now. And I'm seeing that you're actually ready to move into a new role now. We had an employee where that happened, um, where, you know, she was ready. She was just ready to go to that next level. She was ready for, for um, to move into a new role. And um, it happened faster than we would have thought. And we made that change. And so I think it's really important to be communicating those things, you know, over and over again, to be consistent with employees, to make sure that they understand that they know where they're going to surprise and delight you. They also know where, where you're going to be disappointed and to make sure that, you know, you don't let it slide. I think the other thing that's really critical with management is you have to treat everybody the same. You can't play favorites. And if somebody is falling behind, you know, you owe it to them and you owe it to the rest of the team to address those things as quickly as possible. And then, you know, Obviously, you know, outside of coaching in the moment and all these ongoing things, we have our annual reviews where we, we set aside time to really be thorough with our employees and go through everything and make sure they know where they stand. Um, more than anything, I'm a person who over communicates. I'm not a micromanager, but I'm going to be constantly in communication with my staff about projects so that they know that it's not just I'm trying to keep eyes on things. It's important to me that we get to great. And if I feel like there's a way that we can do it, you know, there's no project that's too small at my firm for me to step into. You know, it could be a singular social media post or it could be a massive campaign for our largest clients that we're working on. Um, you know, I tend to be a person that like travels around from account to account and makes sure that um, everything is getting the attention that it deserves and that our clients um, feel the support, but that also our staff knows this is what the expectation is. And I am here also to support you on that, not just to ask you to, to go the road alone. We have about 
five minutes left and I have one and then I know Queenie has one more question for you. Um, when you're thinking about early stage entrepreneurs or early stage um, startups, doing multi-channel communications or multi-channel ways to make your presence known in the community is extremely important. And I know from uh, some of the things that your firm does, you have a podcast, Open Swim, that you talk about industry-specific um, issues. What advice would you give to uh, early stage startups or entrepreneurs is they're evaluating the different channels for getting the word out about who they are, what they stand for, and where their areas of expertise are. Yeah. So, you know, there was a question earlier about, um, I think Sarah was saying that she has her own consulting firm and how to make sure to, you know, you may be known for a lot of different things, but how to make it clear, you know, to clients what you, what you do. Um, I think that that's where it starts is what are you passionate about? What do you do well? And what is your position in the marketplace? Once you establish that, it's going to be clear who you are for as a business. Once you determine that, it becomes a lot easier to say, okay, here's where I need to put my message so that I can get in front of the right people. You know, the podcast, for example, um, it came out of a few different things. One, I'm a total podcast junkie. I listen to it all. The, I listen to podcasts all the time. My husband always says to me, like, how do you find the time to listen to that? I'm always listening to podcasts. I'm like a, a ravenous consumer of information. I'm reading. I'm listening. I'm. I'm, I'm just. I'm always learning. Um, but I, I think that, you know, it, it holds true for a lot of decision makers that they're busy and they're on the go. And so the other thing I knew about podcasts from the, the, the trade publications and all the research that we do is that a lot of C-suite level executives are listening to podcasts because they're on the go all the time. It's an easy thing for them to consume, you know, on their commute on a train or while they're in a car or while they're sitting in line to pick up their kids from, you know, soccer practice or whatever the case may be, you know, that, that's a way that you can reach them. It's also a way for us to reach people when there isn't a lot of distraction. I'm always thinking about divergent media and, you know, obviously digital is a big part of anybody's media mix right now. It has to be. We're online all the time. But it's also a very congested landscape. And so for digital to work well, the content has to be great. So again, this comes back to driving towards great. And for us, you know, that's why, you know, we decided in the last year um, to bring um, multimedia, you know, and motion-based motion and sound in-house because we were finding that um, we work with, and we still work with outside vendors as well as on a case by case basis, but we were finding that we wanted to be able to prototype work more quickly. And we had something specific in mind when we thought about what great work looked like within the motion, sound, and audio space. Um, and so, you know, for us, you know, we made some decisions about that. We made a huge investment in bringing that in house. Um, you know, hiring two employees to staff that department in addition to myself. And as I mentioned, I was a film major many, many, many moons ago and have worked extensively in broadcast. And so that was sort of like a, a nice little hat I got to put on. Um, but, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to is, you know, taking what you know about who you are, who your business is, who you want to be, and who you're for. And once you answer those questions, it's a lot easier to answer the question of where does my message need to be? Um, and if you can't figure those things out on your own, that's a really good place 
for whether it's a firm like ours or a mentor or a coach or somebody, that's a, that's a good place to bounce ideas because the more you talk through it, I think you'll start to unlock, oh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe that's something I hadn't thought of before that could really break through the clutter. Awesome. So you sort of answered my question as well. Um, thank you so much for your answers. Doug, do you have anything to add? Thank you so much for your time today, Hallie and Queenie. Thank you for moderating. Um, you know, I think that entrepreneurship here in Cleveland is something that we want to see continue to grow. And uh, I think Shark and Minnow is kind of a great model to look at for, you know, what entrepreneurs could be. So thank you so much for taking the time. 